The Westminster Confession of Faith was first published in 1646. It was the result of the hard work done by a group of men called the Westminster Divines. Their goal was to outline what they believed the Scriptures principally taught. And it has been said that the Church of Christ cannot be creedless and live. Thankfully, the Westminster Confession of Faith has been the creed of the Reformed Church for almost 400 years. This podcast seeks to point you to Christ, to help you navigate the Westminster Confession of Faith, and to see you understand what you believe and why you believe it. Welcome to This We Confess. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 29 of the Lord's Supper, Paragraphs 3 and 4. The Lord Jesus hath in this ordinance appointed his ministers to declare his word of institution to the people, to pray and bless the elements of bread and wine, and thereby to set them apart from a common to a holy use, and to take and break the bread, to take the cup, and they communicating also themselves to give both to the communicants, but to none who are not then present in the congregation. Paragraph 4. Private masses, or receiving the sacrament by a priest or any other alone, as likewise a denial of the cup to the people, worshipping the elements, the lifting them up, or carrying them about for adoration, and reserving them for any pretended religious use, are all contrary to the nature of the sacrament and to the institution of Christ. Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 86 of This We Confess, and today we consider paragraphs 3 and 4 of this chapter, and consider some of the practicalities of how we are to actually celebrate the Lord's Supper. Thankfully, the Lord has left us great protection from the vanities and imaginations of sinful men. For in his word, Christ shows us the power and yet the wonderful simplicity of the Lord's Supper meal. The Westminster Divines begin by telling us that Christ has appointed his ministers to do certain things at the Lord's Supper. We don't need to reinvent the wheel and we certainly don't need to add a little bit of spice of excitement to the supper. Christ commands, and we follow. Jesus expects his ministers to lead the supper in four ways. Firstly, the presiding minister should declare the word of institution to the people, and in this way we remind the gathered church that the Lord's Supper is Christ's idea. It is his gift to the church. It has his authority stamped on it. It is designed and instituted by Christ, and we see this in the scriptures. As Jesus shares the Last Supper with his disciples, he speaks and he explains the deeper significance of the meal. Matthew 26, verse 26 onward. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Mark fourteen twenty two onwards. 
And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And then again in a similar fashion in Luke 22, verse 19 onwards. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It is clear in the Gospels that Christ himself instituted the Lord's Supper. And following in this example, later in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 onwards, the Apostle Paul underlines for us that which we have received. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so the scriptures are in full agreement that when the Lord instituted his meal, he announced a declaration of its purpose. He instituted it and declared the meal as something that was to be repeated by the church until his return. And so today, when the Lord's table is set in your church, the minister will declare these words of institution. Secondly, the Lord's Supper is to be accompanied by prayer. We're certainly not to eat and drink in an unworthy manner, We are to examine ourselves and to consider our ways. We should repent before the Lord as we prepare to receive the meal, and we should call upon him and ask him to strengthen our faith and give us a deeper sense of assurance. You could travel today, for example, to your mother's house. You could probably let yourself in, and you could help yourself to the contents of her fridge before leaving. You might even do all of this without saying a word of thanks to your parents. Although I suspect we all agree that such an approach would be incredibly ignorant and rude. In like manner, it seems ludicrous to me to suggest that prayer should not be part of our practice as we approach the Lord's table. We have much to thank the Lord for before we come anywhere near the bread and the wine. We have much to confess before we eat and we drink. Prayer brings us into the heavenly throne room and it causes us to fall before our holy and almighty God, who has set the table on our behalf. We are to call upon the Lord in prayer as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Thirdly, our prayers can say plenty before the table, but they should always bless the elements of bread and wine. What did the Westminster Divines mean when they suggested this? I suspect for many of us, Bread and wine are incredibly common items in our homes. Now, for me, I am teetotal, and so I rarely see a bottle of wine. The same, however, cannot be said for bread. I can't imagine a day that goes by without bread being bought, toasted, and devoured in our home. So much so that I remember my mother describing her empty cupboards in this way. 
Oh, we don't even have a crust of bread in the house. To have a home without bread strikes us as odd. It is such a staple of our diet that we see and touch and taste bread every single day. And yet when we pray and bless the elements of bread and wine, we are praying that God would take everyday, ordinary, common items and set them aside for an extraordinary purpose. Please be clear here that as Reformed Christians, we do not believe that anything magical happens to the bread and wine. We certainly do not accept that they turn into the actual physical body and blood of Christ. Nor do we believe that the bread and wine have been saturated with some sort of significance that leftover bread couldn't be used for food and leftover wine could not be poured back into the bottle. No, the bread remains bread and the wine remains wine. But we pray that the Lord would take these ordinary things and strengthen our faith in an extraordinary way. In earlier paragraphs, we have studied what the Lord's Supper actually does. And how does God do this work? He does it by using everyday food items like bread and wine, and he fills our souls by his word, his supper, his spirit. We are to bless the elements before we take them, and we follow Christ's example, who thanked God for the food at his own last supper. Fourthly and finally, the minister is to take the bread and the wine and give it to both himself and the gathered church for their spiritual nourishment. We see this gathering for the Lord's Supper meal in the scriptures. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, we read that on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. And then in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 20, the apostle is challenging those who disrupt the Lord's Supper. But he does state in verse 20, when you come together. So there is this expectation in the scriptures that we will gather and we will gather around the Lord's table. And so when the table is set in any congregation, those who profess faith in Christ should be present to eat and drink to remember and to proclaim Christ's death until he comes. The Christian can no more do without the Lord's Supper than he or she could do without their daily food and drink. The minister declares the words of institution. He prays. He blesses the elements which have been set aside from their common everyday use and he serves the meal to the people present. And the paragraph ends with the certain note that the supper should not be served to those who are not present in the congregation. Now some individuals, for reason of infirmity, may not be physically able to come to the Lord's Supper, and so it may be appropriate for the elders to consider how best to pastorally care for such people. However, those who are fit and well and profess faith in Christ, yet never come to his table, should not expect to have any part of the meal. On that note, the Westminster Divines moved to speak about some of the superstitious practices associated with the Lord's Supper. They are clear in paragraph 4 that there are to be no private masses, the priest is not to take communion on his own, and the cup is not to be denied to the people. To do any of these things 
is contrary to the supper of Christ. Jesus instituted this supper for his bride, the church. And it doesn't matter if you are rich enough to have your own private table in your own private church. To divorce yourself from the people of God at the table is to rob the table of its communal nature. It is for the church. It is not just for you. And equally, if a priest or a minister decided that they alone would eat and drink in full view of the people, but never extend the cup to the gathered congregation, this too robs the Lord's Supper of its nature and significance. The Apostle reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16 onwards, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. And then later in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 29, Paul counsels us, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so the Lord's Supper is not a solo pursuit. It is not an exercise for you and your private mass and your private priest. The Lord's Supper is a gathered communal meal where the Church of Christ proclaims him until he comes and we proclaim that not just do we belong to Jesus, but we also belong to one another. These perhaps might seem issues more suited to the day and age that the Westminster Divines wrote the Confession but I believe they speak to the individualism of the modern age. The Lord's Supper takes from us all notions that we stand alone, and instead it reminds us that we are part of the body of Christ. Therefore, brothers and sisters, I urge you, flee from anything in the church that creates exclusive and elite groups. There is real danger when we treat the church like a loosely connected gathering of special interest cliques. So the bread and the cup is for the people of God, not private masses or for the minister alone, but for the people of God. Additionally, as we strive to remove any hint of individualism from the supper, we should also realise that the bread and wine are not to be misused. The Westminster Divines warn that we are not to worship the bread and wine. They are not to be lifted up as if we are handling the very body and blood of Christ himself. We are not to carry them around with us in some sort of grand religious procession. The bread and the wine is not to be adored by us, nor is it to be kept in a little box for later on when we will use it for some other religious purpose. Anything of this is contrary to the nature of the sacrament and to the institution of Christ. Indeed, we would do well to remember Christ's condemnation of the Pharisees, whom Jesus said the prophet Isaiah prophesied about. Matthew 15 and verse 9. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so, my brothers and sisters, this we confess. The Lord's Supper is an extraordinary meal. Make no mistake of that, and yet, at the same time, the Lord's Supper is an extraordinarily simple affair. Christ has given us the meal. He has set aside everyday elements of bread and wine, 
and he calls us to come and to eat and to drink and to remember. It really is as wonderful and as simple as that. As always, here are some questions for you to consider. Question 1. According to the Westminster Divines, what four things must take place when we come to the Lord's Supper? Question 2. Why shouldn't the Lord's Supper be taken to those who don't come to the public celebration of the Lord's Supper? Question 3. Why does the minister bless the bread and wine? And what isn't happening by way of this blessing? And question 4. Summarise paragraph 4 and highlight at least three pitfalls that we are to avoid in the Lord's Supper. That's all for today. As always, my name is Scott Woodburn. And until next time, this we confess. Mm-hmm.